Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. July 28th. 1996 was a sunny, cloudless day on the southwest coast of England. The calm blue waters off the Devon County shoreline shimmered in the sunlight as John Kopik and his son Craig set out on their trusty fishing trawler, Malcary, to fish for bass in the English Channel. After more than 30 years of commercial fishing, John Kopik knew where to hunt, and a good catch of bass was worth thousands. So on that particular summer day, father and son headed to a rocky area well known as the Ruffs. For the uneven sea bottom in that location, they used a special trawling net called a rock hopper that wouldn't get ripped or tangled if it hit an obstacle. But after a few hours of trawling, their specially outfitted net hadn't captured much of anything. The trip had been a bust, but John didn't mind. He was enjoying the day with his son, who was home from college. Before heading back in and sharing a pint at their local pub, they decided to drop the net one more time. It was around 3 p.m., and the Mulcary trawler was six miles out from shore. When Craig winched in the heavy net, his dad was happy to see a good haul of silvery bass. Finally, thought John Kopik, his fishing instincts had been right. But then, he spotted something else in the net. It was something large and white. Probably a dead porpoise, he thought. He had seen them years before while fishing off Iceland. But... As they examined their haul closer, father and son realized what they had in their net was no marine mammal. It was a dead man. The man was fully dressed in green Levi cord pants held up by a brown leather belt, a long-sleeved blue checkered shirt, woolen socks, and brown leather shoes. Strangely, the pockets of the man's pants had been turned inside out. Had the poor fella been robbed and then thrown into the sea, wondered Kopik? 
the man's face was distorted and bruised, so it was hard to tell how old he was. And he had some kind of tattoo on his hand, shaped like a star or a blue emblem of some kind. Maybe he was a foreign seaman who had fallen overboard. The Coppics stood stunned, staring down at their mystery catch. For an experienced fisherman like John, finding a body at sea, or a floater as they were affectionately called, was a bad omen. And it wasn't unheard of amongst his fellow seamen to toss a body back into the sea. If the Copics took the man back to shore, there would undoubtedly be a police investigation, which could mean time lost on the boat. And if the body was never identified, John, the skipper, under nautical tradition, would have to give the deceased a proper burial at sea. And once they reported the body, any fish they had caught in the same net would have to be thrown back. He would lose the money from the nice haul of bass slithering on his deck. John contemplated his next move. His life would be a whole lot easier if he just tossed the body back into the sea. But he knew he couldn't do that. He belongs to someone, he said to his son. And then he noticed something he hadn't seen before. The hot July sun was reflecting off metal on the man's right wrist. It was a watch. It was a Rolex watch. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm telling you the true story of a sensational crime that made headlines on both sides of the Atlantic. It involves a complicated web of deceit, greed, money laundering, and murder. And at the heart of the crimes was a man who was willing to use and abuse anyone for his own personal gain, including his own daughter. This is Trail of Pain, The Crimes of Albert Johnson Walker. Evil criminal mastermind. At that body had been trolled a violent fishing boat. Learns he was in Devon the week of Plattsburgh. Every Rolex tells a story, the Swiss-based company boasts. And according to its website, wearing a Rolex watch enables entry into a world of unlimited possibilities. Created in 1908 by Hans Wilsdorf, a German entrepreneur, the Rolex Oyster Perpetual was the first truly waterproof self-winding wristwatch. The expensive timepiece soon became a symbol of elegance, style, and success, with its wearers making up a kind of exclusive club. And every watch was unique, with its own customer-specific serial number. Now, a man's body had been found six miles off the coast of Devon, and the mystery man's Rolex watch was still on his wrist. What story was this Rolex going to tell? For fisherman John Coppock and his son, the events of July 28th were certainly going to be a story that they would be telling for a long time. 
And while the seasoned seaman had debated about what to do with the body ensnared in his fishing net, he knew that they had ultimately done the right thing in bringing it to shore. Surely someone would be missing the man. But in all the chaos of the situation, when the police boarded his boat, John had forgotten about the anchor. When he reeled in the trawl net that contained the body, the netting had also caught a plow anchor, named due to its shape like the front of a plow that can dig into a sandy bottom, versus an admiral-style anchor with two hooks. Not many fishermen used a plow anchor, and it looked brand new. But John forgot about it after they docked in Brixham Harbor. Later, when the body had been removed and the police had left, another fisherman spotted the anchor and asked John about it. The 10-pound weight would be perfect for his speedboat. Take it, said John. He didn't want it. John had something more bothersome on his mind as he dumped his now-contaminated net of bass. Best haul he'd had in a long time. But a man was dead, and John hoped the police would be able to figure out who he was. The next day, July 29th, an autopsy was conducted on the body that had been fished out of the sea by John Coppock and his son. The remains were determined to be that of a middle-aged man, approximately 35 to 45 years old, with a slim build and brown hair. He had one bluish tattoo on his right hand, but it was difficult to make out what it was. The coroner discovered that the man had a large gash on the back of his head, about four inches long, and he was likely unconscious when he went into the water. The body also had unexplained bruising on the left hip. Every piece of the man's clothing was examined. The pants had a Made in Canada label, while the shirt was made in the USA. One thing was for sure. The man was not a fisherman who had fallen from a boat. The way he was dressed and the lack of a sailor's tan made that obvious. Once the full autopsy was complete, the coroner determined the cause of death was drowning. But the doctor couldn't determine if the death had been the result of foul play, an accident, or possible suicide. The medical examiner thought it was odd that the man was fully dressed and had been found six miles out to sea. There was definitely something suspicious about the circumstances, he thought, and he relayed his concerns to the local police. It did not look like suicide to him. But ultimately, the police needed to know who the man was before they could figure out more about how he died. Information was released to the regional newspapers and immediately the local press were calling the unknown corpse the Rolex Man. It was a bizarre whodunit for the picturesque coastal community and many locals wondered how a man with such an expensive watch had ended up at the bottom of the sea. And with no other identification on the body, 
the Rolex watch was the only possible lead the police had. Looking at the watch, detectives noted that it had stopped at 11.35 on July 22nd, six days earlier. But they couldn't find a serial number on the watch. Maybe it was a fake. The Exeter police contacted the Rolex head office and explained the circumstances. The representative at the watch company told them that the serial number was hidden on the shoulder of the casing beneath the bracelet. You couldn't see the number without taking off the strap. Finally, when the police removed the watch strap, they discovered the first possible clue to the dead man's identity. Serial number 154402. On August the 7th, the Rolex watch company informed the Exeter police that the watch had been manufactured in 1967 in Switzerland and shipped to a jeweler in Germany. Company records showed that it had been repaired twice since its purchase. From the last repair in 1986, 10 years prior to the body being discovered, the company had an address in Harrogate, North Yorkshire, listed. Harrogate was 295 miles northeast of Exeter. But did the company have the watch owner's name? Of course, said the Rolex representative. In 1986, the watch had been owned by a man named Ronald Joseph Platt. Dental records soon confirmed that the 51-year-old man was their unidentified drowning victim. Every Rolex tells a story, and the dead man's watch had just revealed the most critical piece of information, his name. But now, the police needed to know a lot more. Did he have a family? Was someone looking for him? And how had Ronald Platt ended up at the bottom of the English Channel, hundreds of miles from his last known address? The police in Exeter had the identity of the man who had been fished out of the sea near Brixham. But no one had filed a missing persons report. Combing through health records and tax forms, the police soon discovered that Ronald Platt had moved from Harrogate to an address in Kelmsford, Essex, a city about an hour's drive northeast of London. But further inquiries revealed that Ronald Platt had moved from that address in June, a month before his body had been found. The landlord told the police that he didn't know where Platt had moved to. The only information he had was the name and phone number of a reference that Platt had given him when he moved into the apartment six months earlier. The reference was for a man named David W. Davis. In mid-August, Detective Sergeant Peter Redman of the Essex County Police received a call from his counterparts in Exeter. They had the body of a man named Ronald Platt whose last known address was in Kelmsford. The Exeter police needed his assistance. 
could Detective Redmond contact a man named David Davis, who had been listed as a reference for Mr. Platt. It was obviously a delicate matter, as the detective would have to inform Mr. Davis that Mr. Platt was dead. Detective Redmond agreed to help. He called the mobile number listed for Mr. Davis, and after confirming the man on the phone was indeed a friend of Ronald Platt's, he informed him that the police in Exeter had recovered Mr. Platt's body. Oh my God, said the man. Detective Redmond didn't want to go into the whole story over the phone, so he asked if he could pay Mr. Davis a visit at his home to discuss more details. No, said Mr. Davis, who appeared to have an American accent. But he said he would be happy to come to the Kelmsford police station. He didn't live far. Two days later, as arranged, David Davis arrived at the station to meet with Detective Redmond. Mr. Davis was a tall, distinguished-looking man who was impeccably dressed and well-groomed. He told the detective that he had not seen his friend Ronald Platt since June, two months prior. Were the police sure the body was Platt, he asked? Detective Redmond told Mr. Davis that they had luckily been able to trace Platt's identity through his Rolex watch. Yes, said Mr. Davis. He remembered Ronald always wore an old watch. Davis went on to say that he had known Ronald Platt for a couple of years. The two men shared a lot in common. Referring to Platt as his best friend and kindred spirit, Davis told the detective that Ronald Platt was planning to move to France in June to start a new business. In fact, Davis had loaned him £3,000. Davis said he assumed Ronald would get in touch once he was settled. Davis told the detective that he had no idea why Ronald Platt would have been in the Devon area. And no, Ronald did not own a boat. Anxious to contact any family, the detective asked Mr. Davis if Ronald Platt had any relatives. Davis wasn't entirely sure. He thought his mom was still alive, and he had two brothers, but he didn't know their names or where they lived. Odd, thought the detective, for a man claiming to be the dead man's best friend. Before Mr. Davis left the police station, he agreed to send the detective a recent photo of Ronald Platt. Four days later, the detective received one small, out-of-focus photo in the mail. No note, no return address. Very strange, thought the detective. Mr. Davis didn't seem that upset about his friend's death. He sent the photo to the police in Exeter, assuming he was done with the case. A few weeks later, the Exeter police were able to track down Ronald Platt's brother, Brian, who lived in Shropshire. Brian was stunned to hear that his younger brother had drowned off the Devon coast. He told the police that Ronnie, as he called him, and his other brother, Jeff, had grown up in Canada, 
when their family immigrated to Saskatchewan in 1955. Brian, who was the eldest, had stayed in England. The family returned to England when Ronnie was 16, but he never lost his love for Canada and even had a maple leaf tattooed on his hand. He always wanted to move back, said his brother. Brian told the detective that he and his brother had fallen out of touch in the past 10 years. Ronnie had served in the British Army and had a good career as a television repairman. He described his brother as a quiet man, a loner. He had been briefly married in 1965 and had one son, but his family life had fallen apart. After his divorce, Brian said that Ronnie had met a woman named Elaine Boyce. The two of them had been together for a long time and had even lived in Canada for a few years. Elaine still lived in Harrogate, said Brian. And although she and Ronnie had split up in 1993, they were still close. If the police needed to know more about Ronnie and how he ended up in Devon, Elaine would be the best person to speak with. The police had one more question for Brian Platt. Could his brother swim? No, said Brian. The police were grateful that Brian had helped them fill in some of the missing information about Ronald Platt, including his mystery tattoo that had turned out to be a Canadian maple leaf. Detectives wanted to speak with Elaine Boys, Ronald's ex-girlfriend. But first, they needed to pay another visit to Mr. Davis. In October three months after Ronald Platt's body had been fished out of the sea. The Exeter police contacted Detective Redman in Kelmsford again to ask if he could meet with Platt's friend, David Davis, to answer some more questions. Thinking about the odd exchange he'd had with Mr. Davis, Detective Redman agreed. But first, he wanted to do a little bit more digging. He looked up Ronald Platt through the local tax department and learned that he had written them a notice stating that he was moving to France and therefore was no longer liable for paying property tax. And at the local postal office, Platt had left a forwarding address. He requested that his mail be directed to the little London farmhouse in the nearby hamlet of Woodham Walter which turned out to be David Davis's address. Detective Redman decided to take a drive to the countryside. Woodham Walter was six miles east of Kelmsford. The isolated hamlet was home to only a few hundred people, the kind of quaint English village with one pub, one church, and where everyone knew their neighbours. The address he was looking for, Little London Farmhouse, was down a dirt road surrounded by hedgerows. When he reached the location, there were two homes on the lane, but no names on a mailbox or numbers to identify which one David Davis lived in. 
Detective Redmond decided to knock on the first house, a charming English cottage with a red roof and a beautiful English garden in front. A pleasant-looking lady of about 70 answered the door. Sorry to bother you, said the detective. Is this little London farmhouse, he asked. That's the house next door, said the woman, pointing to a two-story, nondescript white stucco house with no garden. Who are you looking for, she inquired. David Davis, said the detective. Nobody there by that name, said the friendly neighbor. Ronald Platt and his wife Noelle live there, she continued. But they're not home right now. Detective Redman couldn't understand what he had just heard. How could Ronald Platt be living in that house with a wife if he was dead? And where was David Davis? The woman invited him in and introduced the detective to her husband. Audrey Mossman and Frank Johnson had lived in their little English cottage for many years, and the Platts were their newest neighbors. While not wanting to alarm the older couple, Detective Redman casually asked about the Platts. Frank said that Ron was a distinguished-looking chap in his late 40s, but his wife, Noelle, was much younger, probably in her early 20s. And they had two daughters, three-year-old Emily and a baby named Lillian. A nice couple, said Frank, but the young wife didn't talk much and kept to herself. I don't think they're actually married, said the neighbor. Ron Platt and his wife, he added, were both American, and Ron had a nice sailboat in Devon. Detective Redmond was still trying to get his head around what he was hearing. But it didn't take long for him to put two and two together. The man he had met at the police station, David Davis, was for reasons still unknown, calling himself Ronald Platt, the name of his dead friend. But who was the woman masquerading as his wife? Detective Redmond thanked the elderly couple and asked them not to tell their neighbor, Ron Platt, of his visit. He'd come back when they were home. Back at the police station, Detective Redmond contacted the Exeter police to tell them that the man he had originally met and who had said he was Ronald Platt's best friend was actually using Platt's identity. But why? And if the man wasn't Ronald Platt, and if he wasn't David Davis, who was he? Whoever he was, he apparently had a sailboat in Devon. And that meant he probably knew more about what had happened to the real Ronald Platt. Suddenly, the Exeter police realized they likely had a murder on their hands. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. 
Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. By the end of October, three months after Ronald Platt's mysterious death at sea, the police had tracked down his ex-girlfriend, Elaine Boys. The middle-aged woman still lived in Harrogate, a picturesque university town 13 miles north of Leeds. Elaine was heartbroken to hear about Ron's death. The two had met in 1980 and lived together for almost 15 years. Ron was a quiet, introverted man, said Elaine, and he always dreamed about moving back to Canada. And in 1993, Ron and Elaine finally moved to Calgary, Alberta. But Elaine was lonely and couldn't deal with the cold weather. Five months later, she moved back to England, leaving Ron in Canada. In 1995, Ron returned to England, but the relationship was over. Now, in the fall of 1996, Elaine admitted that the two hadn't spoken in about a year. But she had called their mutual friend, David Davis, in September. And he had told her that Ron had moved to France. At the time, Elaine said she couldn't understand why Ron would move to France. He didn't speak the language and she knew he wouldn't have left without contacting her. 
It was totally out of character. But even stranger, that phone call had happened two months after Ron's death, and David Davis already knew he was dead when he spoke with Elaine. Why didn't Davis tell Elaine that Ron was dead? The police needed to know how she knew the mysterious David Davis. Elaine explained that five years prior in March of 1991, while working for an auction house in Harrogate, a tall, distinguished man with an American accent came into the shop to inquire about a painting. He introduced himself as David Davis from Vermont. Elaine said she found the stranger charming, and the two talked for a long time. The American said he was in the financial business and was relocating to Harrogate from London. Then, out of the blue, the man asked Elaine if she wanted to come and work for him as his personal secretary. Elaine was shocked at the suggestion, having just met the man, but he said he'd made a lot of money and was looking for a fresh start. Maybe they could open an antique business. Elaine was still suspicious of the man's intentions, so she was clear that she had a long-term boyfriend. She told David Davis about her boyfriend, Ron Platt, and mentioned his love of Canada. The friendly American said he knew Canada well. It's a beautiful country, he told Elaine. Elaine thought the man's offer was too good to be true, so she asked for his business card and said she would talk to her boyfriend. David Davis seemed pleased and said he would call her in a few weeks. And sure enough, three weeks later, the American called Elaine and suggested that she and her boyfriend have dinner with him when he was back in Harrogate. Elaine agreed. Over wine and pasta at a local Italian restaurant, Elaine and Ron got to know David Davis. Ron and David hit it off right away, said Elaine, with Ron talking about Canada and David knowing many of the places Ron spoke of. After the successful dinner, Elaine went to work for David Davis at his new company called Cavendish Corporation. Davis appointed both Ron Platt and Elaine Boys directors of the company. He told Elaine that the bank accounts would be under her and Ron's names, but only Elaine could sign checks. Elaine thought this was odd, but Davis explained he was hiding money from his ex-wife, who coincidentally lived in Canada. Elaine didn't have a background in business, so she did what her new boss asked her to do. She opened bank accounts in Switzerland, France, and Italy, and often exchanged Swiss currency for British pounds. Davis treated her well and paid all of her expenses in cash. He would invite Elaine and Ron to London for the weekend and take them out for expensive dinners. And he loved to brag. Elaine told the police that her new boss was always telling stories about how much money he had made and who he knew. David Davis eventually introduced Elaine and Ron to his teenage daughter, Noelle, 
who was living in England with him. He said he had two other daughters in the United States. In 1992, after Elaine had been working with Davis for about a year, he helped Ron open his own television repair shop and also helped Elaine purchase a flat. Davis suggested to the couple that with the money earned at the shop and if they flipped Elaine's flat in a year or so, they would have enough money to move to Canada. Davis knew that was Ron Platt's dream and he was intent on helping him achieve it. Then, on Christmas Day, 1992, David Davis presented Ron and Elaine with a very generous gift, two one-way tickets to Canada. Ron was overjoyed. Elaine wasn't so sure. But there was only one catch to Davis's generosity. They had to leave by the end of February 1993. He didn't explain why. Elaine knew this was Ron's dream, and if she loved Ron, she would have to go. But she told Davis she would need a round-trip ticket because her sister was getting married that July and she wasn't going to miss it. Davis agreed, and two months later, on a cold winter day in February 1993, Ron and Elaine arrived to start their new life in Calgary, Alberta. Ronald Platt was finally back in the country of his youth and had no intentions of ever returning to England. And that was something David Davis was counting on. In July 1993, five months after moving to Canada, Elaine Boys returned to England for her sister's wedding. She was supposed to stay for a week, but she had no plans to return to Calgary, where Ron was waiting. She hated it. It was cold and depressing. She wanted to be back in England, close to her family. When she told her old boss, David Davis, she wasn't returning to Canada, he implored her to go back to Ron. But when she refused, he suggested she move to Italy. No, she was staying in Harrogate, she told him. But then, not long after her return, it was Davis who was gone. He told Elaine he was leaving Harrogate and moving to France. He didn't leave a forwarding address or phone number. Elaine suddenly had no job and no boyfriend. She became severely depressed. David Davis would call once in a while to check in on her, but was always vague about his whereabouts. Two years later, in June of 1995, Ron Platt called Elaine to tell her he was moving back to England. He had lost his job in Calgary, and he too hated the long, cold winters. Elaine was sad that Ron's Canadian dream hadn't worked out for him, but was glad he was returning to England. But later, when she mentioned to David Davis that Ron was returning to England, the American seemed very unhappy with Ron's decision. After the police met with Elaine Boys, 
they knew that they needed to find out more about David Davis, who was now living under the name of his dead friend, Ronald Platt. And who was the woman living with him as his wife, calling herself Noelle Platt? A few days later, Detective Redman obtained a birth certificate showing the January 14, 1996 birth of a Lillian Claire Platt. The document showed the parents as Ronald Platt and Noelle Platt. This matched the age of the infant living with David Davis and the unknown woman in the little London farmhouse. Lying on a birth certificate was considered fraud, so the police now had a valid reason to arrest David Davis and the mystery woman. They needed them in custody while they tried to get to the bottom of this bizarre mystery. What exactly was going on? In the early morning of October 31, 1996, Detective Sergeant Peter Redman slowly drove his unmarked police car down Ravenhall Lane towards Little London Farmhouse. It was Halloween, a fitting day to arrest a man who was masquerading as someone else. It had just been two weeks since Detective Redman had driven down that same laneway and had knocked on the wrong door. But that one simple mistake had revealed that the man he had met as David Davis was actually living under the name of Ronald Platt. And since that time, the police had met Ronald Platt's ex-girlfriend and learned much more about the mysterious American and how he had paid for Ronald Platt to move to Canada. It looked like Davis had assumed his friend's identity once he was out of the country. But then, Ronald Platt came back to England, putting Davis's identity theft scheme in jeopardy. Now, there were two Ronald Platts living in close proximity, and then one of them turned up dead. With guns drawn, a team of police officers arrested David Davis as he stepped out of a cab in front of his stucco farmhouse. Remember me, asked Detective Redman, as the American was placed in handcuffs? Redman advised Davis he was being arrested on suspicion of the murder of Ronald Platt. Okay, responded Davis. Inside Little London Farmhouse, the police were greeted by a young, attractive woman who said her name was Noelle Platt. She was arrested and children's services were called in to take the couple's two young daughters. The police then searched the house and found a treasure chest of valuables, dozens of gold bars, investment certificates, and thousands of dollars in cash. And they later found more gold bars and cash stuffed into the diaper bag Noelle had supposedly packed for the baby. As the search of the house continued, the police found numerous documents in the name of Ronald Platt, a driver's license, checks, and business cards. And other identification found was in the name of David Davis. There were also a number of packing boxes scattered around the house. It looked like the couple were planning another move. With the phony Platts now behind bars, 
the police continued their investigation. But now, they had one more important piece of information. Fingerprints. The British police suspected that the American couple could be wanted elsewhere, so their prints were sent off to Interpol. Two weeks later, the Interpol inquiry came back with shocking new information. The middle-aged man they had in custody for the suspected murder of Ronald Platt was not an American named David Davis. He was, in fact, a Canadian named Albert Johnson Walker from Paris, Ontario. Walker was a missing fugitive wanted on theft and fraud offenses in Canada, totaling $3.5 million. He had disappeared in 1990. And the Interpol information sheet listed even more startling information. Albert Walker's teenage daughter, Sheena, was also missing and was presumed to be in the company of her father. Photographs attached to the Interpol summary were an exact match for the man and young woman they had in custody. The case of possible murder, identity theft, and fraud couldn't get much stranger, but it just had. Canadian fugitive Albert Walker was living with his own daughter, who was pretending to be his wife. And if that was the case, there was one very troubling question on everyone's minds. Who had fathered Sheena Walker's two children? On the next episode of Trail of Pain, The Crimes of Albert Johnson Walker, the British police have finally uncovered the true identity of the man they suspect of murdering his friend in order to steal his identity. But there appears to be even more to this peculiar international crime story than anyone could have ever imagined. Turns out that 51-year-old Albert Walker has been on the run for over six years, leaving an extensive trail of betrayal and fraud behind him. But when he disappeared with millions of dollars of other people's money, he also took something else far more precious, his own 15-year-old daughter. Her mother in Canada has been searching for her frantically, while the international police have been on the hunt for Walker. But now they have been found, and there are so many more questions that need to be asked and answered. Can the British police and prosecutor prove that Albert Walker's years of deception ultimately ended in murder? And what story will Sheena Walker tell? What happened to the teenager while she was on the run with her father? And will she and her two young daughters ever be able to return home to the family she left behind?
This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.